Hi there, welcome to Claim the Stage, a podcast about public speaking and speaking up. If you struggle with saying what you want to say on stage, on camera, or in conversation, you're in the right place. I'm Angela Lucier, your host. I'm also an author, professional speaker, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. If you want to practice the tips you learn on this podcast, you can check out a Speaker Sisterhood club as a guest for free. Learn more at speakersisterhood.com. Hey friends, welcome back to Claim the Stage. I hope you're doing well. I am very excited for today's episode, and I don't mean to just say that at the beginning of every episode. (laughs) I really do mean it. I am interviewing one of our Speaker Sisterhood Club leaders, Teresa Wiggins, who has been with Speaker Sisterhood for three years and has been such an amazing Uh, role model and amazing part of our organization in leading her club of women who are building the skill of speaking. If you've been interested in checking out a club, but were wondering, like, who are these people who run Speaker Sisterhood Clubs? I hope today's episode will give you a chance to meet one of them. And if you connect with Teresa and you like what she has to say, maybe check out her club. You can go to speakersisterhood.com, click on the club directory and find her club and uh, send her a message to maybe go and check it out. So today's episode, interestingly enough, I'm, I'm really glad about the order that it's appearing. It's episode 199. We are so close to 200. And I'm glad that it falls the week after Judy's interview that um, was all about how to manage your anxiety around speaking. And I found it so fascinating that both Judy and Teresa talk about the uh, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and the role that the brain plays in these, uh, you know, managing anxiety and how to be mindful and how to observe yourself and show up for yourself in these stressful moments. So I, I think it's kind of cool. It's almost like a continuation of last week's episode. And if you enjoyed the exercises and techniques that Judy taught, I think you'll really enjoy Teresa's advice as well and the simplicity of what she is saying and and you'll notice there's a thread through the whole episode I won't give it away now but if you just kind of sit and give yourself a couple minutes to reflect on everything that was said in this conversation you'll find oh this all boils down to one thing and if I can commit to a practice around this one thing that might take three to four minutes a day it will make a huge impact on your life and the way that you show up for yourself and for others. So real quick, before I jump into the conversation, I'll tell you a little bit more about Teresa. Teresa Wiggins speaks on a variety of topics, including parenting, mindfulness, family engagement and education, and as well as her own journey with mental health. She has 20 years combined experience in the fields of education and coaching. And she integrates her passion for kids, families, and education into her business, which is called Village Parenting. She teaches mindfulness, and she's a parenting coach and provides consultation and staff development to schools. Her company seeks to build bridges between home and school in order to improve the education and happiness for the whole child. She's also, as I said, a Speaker Sisterhood Club leader, and she's a member. So without further ado, here's my interview with Teresa Wiggins. Teresa, welcome to Claim the Stage. Hi, Angela. Thank you so much for having me today. 
it's shocking to me that it took this long to have you on the podcast, given the type of work you do and the fact that you've been involved in speaker sisterhood as a club leader for three years, three years. Yeah. No, yeah. Time has flown. It has. <laughs> so today we're talking about mindfulness and I know in recent years, this topic has picked up a lot of attention and people are maybe wondering what exactly is mindfulness. So I thought before we jump into a definition of it and how it applies to dealing with any stress or anxiety that comes up around the topic of speaking, you could give us a little bit of your background and how you got into this type of work. Sure. So, um, my, you know, my background is, um, in education. I I taught for 13 years and then I started to, um, work with families and schools, um, sort of in combination to, um, I, I, I do some parent coaching, I do some staff development at school, and I, I um, sort of work to sort of build bridges between home and school and improve family engagement and communication. And sort of simultaneously with that in my own life, um, you know, I deal with um, OCD and anxiety, and um, I decided that I wanted to learn more about meditation and what better way to do that than to, I don't know, go on silent retreat for four days. (laughs) So I did that. Um, And so it wasn't ever meant to, I didn't think it would be a part of my um, work, but it just was, um, I don't know, uh, it it, it just landed in in my life in such a way that it, it just made sense to incorporate it into my work. So I, like I said, went on retreat, started to incorporate meditation and then therefore mindfulness into my life. And I decided that I would become trained in um, mindful schools curriculum. And so it's also become a part of what I do. I'll I'll go into schools and teach um, mindfulness to students. I'll teach to staff. Um, And in my parent coaching um, or my parent workshops, I incorporated in parenting and mindfulness. Um, so yeah, it's just become a part of my own personal life and then therefore my work. I have to ask about the silent retreat. What was that like? So it's funny. A lot of people say, oh, I can never do that. My brain's too busy. And then I just want to say, well, I do have OCD. So, um, (laughs) it was, it was a great experience for me and it doesn't mean it was, it was all easy or, or, um, or just pure bliss because it is, you know, it's, it's a lot to sit for, um, to, to be quiet for four days. The particular retreat I went on does not require you to be, um, quiet at all times. Like if you need something functionally, you can ask for it. And also like there's, um, yoga and meditation instruction. So there's some Q and a time. So it's not strict in that way, but generally you are quiet for, um, four days. So, it was, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful experience, difficult in moments, but, um, yeah, I, you learn things. That's what I can say. You, you really learn things about what it's like to be quiet and not, not bring, um, the usual things you do to a room, right. Um, your voice, your personality. Yeah. Hmm. I've always thought about doing it. So that's still on my list as a possibility. Um, so we're here to talk about mindfulness today, and I know you wanted to start the, the uh, conversation with an exercise. So tell me about what, what that is. 
Right. So as I was as I was thinking about today, I thought it would I thought it would be nice to be able to have some tangible um, sort of things to refer back to if we were able to start with, say, three minutes. Um, and what I'd ask from uh, your audience, I know a lot of people uh, listen to podcasts while doing something else. So if if uh, the audience would like to find a spot to sit um, or have that ability to do so, they could do that. But if they're driving, if you're um, you know cleaning, if you're cooking, keep at it. And I will, um, I'll provide a way to do this three minute exercise um, if you're sitting quietly or if you're doing whatever it is you're doing. Please do not close your eyes if you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'll have you do is just settle into what you're doing, right? So if you're sitting, you're gonna just feel your body, uh, make contact with the chair. And again, for those who are who are sitting, just either close your eyes or cast them down, downward, whatever feels comfortable to you. If you're driving, and I'm just gonna use the driving example, but please adapt this if you're cooking, or if you're cleaning, or if you're, if you're out for a walk, I want you to just notice how the steering wheel feels in your hand. And just feel like you are arriving in this moment. Really notice what it's like to feel that steering wheel, or again, if you're sitting, to just notice what it's like to feel your body against the chair. And I want you to start to notice your breath move in and out. What we're doing by either focusing in on our breath or the way our body makes contact with the steering wheel, whatever it is that's in your hands, we're giving ourselves an anchor something to return to. Because what will inevitably happen, because we're human beings, is that our brains will drift, our minds will drift. And you will maybe start thinking about what you did yesterday or what you said a moment ago to a loved one or what you need to do tomorrow or what the heck are we doing right now? And when you, the moment that you notice that your thoughts have drifted, just notice that and come back. Come back to the steering wheel. Come back to your breath. Come back to the physical sensation of what it is you're doing right now. Continue to notice that thing. It can also be sounds. Maybe it's the sound of your vacuum. 
for the sound of the spoon stirring in the pot. Find your anchor. And then watch your brain drift again. And then bring it back. Just gently. You're not doing anything wrong. Your brain is just being human and moving all around. There's nothing wrong with that. We're going to end here. Open your eyes back up. Or just keep driving. <laughs> Whatever it is you're doing. So there's a little sample of practicing uh, meditation. And what how I like to explain it to people is that when we practice meditation like that, that improves our ability to be mindful throughout the day, right? So meditation, to me, the way I, I think of it is that sort of more formalized practice where we're really having some focused time on it, and then we can translate that into mindful moments where we are um, bringing ourselves back to the present moment, whether we're in conversation or driving our car or whatever it is we're doing, public speaking, say. <laughs> um, so let me, let me just pause there. And Angela, did you have any questions about that? Yeah. If So that was three minutes, which felt like such a gift for to do that every morning, every night, and to be able to carry that type of mindfulness into the day. What are some of the benefits of being mindful? Um, you know, being more aware of sounds, smells, things in your, um, you know, in your space, what would you say is, a, what are the good reasons for that people should be more mindful? So for me, um, you know, some, some people, some of the myths of mindfulness is that you'll just be happier, right? Yeah. And it's, to me, it's just that you are really increasing paying attention. And a byproduct of that could be increased happiness because you're spending less time perhaps worrying and, and drifting off. And, and by the way, I mean, this might be a good time to say there is nothing wrong with drifting off daydreaming and like our brains need that too. So this is not meant to like demonize any of the things that our brains just do naturally, but it's that ability to understand what is happening when like, Oh, I'm going to just daydream right now. And think creatively and use my imagination and just, you know, that's great and wonderful. Um, the, what, what practicing meditation and mindfulness is, is just increasing our awareness of, of what our brain is doing when. So it's sort of like those times where 
I don't know, when I'm speaking with students and I say, you know, the times when you're in math class, but you're not really in math class. <laughs> if just being able to, to more intentionally um, understand where we want to place our attention. It's increasing our foundational level of choice rather than, rather than some kind of, you know, exerting control over our brains or anything like that. So, um, you know, in terms of benefits, I mean, there's all sorts of byproducts. People talk about reduced stress, um, better sleep, um, being able to, to focus better, um, be more productive. But for me, it's, um, I, I really caution people to have sort of goals around mindfulness because the whole idea is to just be where you are right now um, instead, of, instead of making it goal-oriented. Um, I don't know if that, that answers your, your question or sidesteps your question, I'm not sure which. <laughs> no, I think that answers my question. Is there science behind mindfulness? Yes. Um, so there's, um, one of the ways I like to explain how I understand the science of mindfulness is, uh, using a, um, uh, handy model, which is, was developed by Dan Siegel, who's a, um, child psychiatrist and neuroscientist based in California. He's written several books, um, and anyone can Google this and see his, his video explanation of this. Um, but, um, I teach this all the time to kids and adults, but basically if you take your hand and sort of hold it up with your thumb folded over your palm, um, that thumb, um, represents your amygdala in your brain. Um, and with, um, you know, the amygdala is the part of the brain that's responsible for fight, flight, uh, or, uh, flight, fright, or freeze response. And um, it's an important part of the brain. And we need that part of the brain. It helps us in times of danger um, and emergency. But sometimes our amygdala fires off when it doesn't need to, right? Those are the times where we maybe um, say things we wish we could immediately take back or, um, you know, lash out at a loved one or do something we regret. Um, so so if you now have that thumb folded over your palm and then fold your um, the rest of your fingers over that thumb, now you've created a little model of the brain and those fingers represent the part of your brain uh, right behind your forehead, the prefrontal cortex. And that is the part of the brain when I'm teaching kids, I'll say this is this, the, the thumb is the simple part and the other fingers are the fancy part. And that is the, um, the prefrontal cortex in charge of executive function, in charge of planning, impulse control, emotional regulation. Um, and when our amygdala is activated in full activation, those fingers flip up, right? Like we literally um, flip our lid, as Dan Siegel says. And on average, a human's brain... Um, uh, our IQ drops about 20 points because we are just focused on handling that emergency and not th that prefrontal cortex goes offline. So we are not using our emotional regulation. We are not using our impulse control or our planning. Um, so what 
meditation does practicing meditation is it in for it um, strengthens the connections between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex so that it doesn't um, flip as easily or as readily when it doesn't need to. So it helps keep it online more often and more consistently because we can be observational about and say, oh, okay, wait, what are, what are these signals that I'm getting that my amygdala is, is starting to feel a little, uh, I'm starting to feel a little triggered. What are, what are those things? Be observational about it and, and keep our prefrontal cortex online, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So it's almost sense? like you're able to separate yourself from your response and observe your response, that's like right. the way that you're observing the steering wheel in, in a meditation. That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. So I, I often think about like the meditation and mindfulness is like, yes, taking that observational lens and um, placing it on just about everything. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that we can, we can notice the, the, um, signals in our body when we feel our blood pressure rising, right. And you go, Hmm, you know, what is that trembling? I feel, what is that heat in my face? Hmm. And just not, not judgmentally, but just observationally and taking that time to do that. Um, it, it, it helps us choose a response rather than have a reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you you find yourself in say a stressful situation where you might have flipped your lid before and now you're able to observe it, are there ways that mindfulness can help you to then navigate that situation in a way that might be less explosive or more productive? Yeah. So part of it is just observing that your own body and or your own mind is feeling um, more you know, elevated, triggered, whatever, however you might put it. Um, And that buys you time. That alone, just having that observational stance buys you time and can help your own physiology sort of settle down and, and, and relax. Um, And then, yeah. So the time alone helps, but then also just continuing to be observational. If I'm observational about how someone else is, having a moment, then I also am not, um, I can use the frame phrase, like just ingesting it. I'm, I'm observing that someone else is having a difficult moment. It increases my compassion maybe towards them, but I'm at least being observational and saying, Hmm, they seem upset. And it makes it suddenly less personal, Mm -hmm. but it's not about me. Yeah. So my first thought when you say that is I'm, I'm someone who's highly sensitive. I'm definitely an empath. I, and I also tend to be um, codependent with people and like, can be a people pleaser. So when I sense that someone is in distress, someone's struggling with something, my first impulse is I want to fix it. And so through mindfulness, I can maybe be able to sit back and observe they're going through something. So I'm going to walk alongside them instead of trying to step in and and run the show, but are there um, techniques or anything that you can offer to people who do kind of fall into those categories of, of, um, you know, picking up on other people's energy and being influenced by it and then wanting to like, you know, fix it? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think that again, this is about any sort of observation that you can offer yourself and offer the moment. So 
kind of dropping in. I, I think about it as like dropping into my body when I feel like I'm very um, caught up in my thoughts in the same way that I had us come back to the steering wheel or come back to our breath. When I notice, oh, you know, that sort of what you describe, um, what happens to you sometimes of like, oh, oh I want to fix it. Oh, that's all thought narrative and, and sort of spiraling, right? And so when you can then observe that and say, hmm, I'm, I, you know, and people put different labels on it. I'm spiraling or I'm, I'm obsessing or I'm being codependent, like whatever it is for you, then you can say, hmm, and observe that. And then notice what's in your hands, for example. Um, notice your breath, right? And then I think another, another piece of this is knowing what's yours and what is theirs. Yeah. Right. And just kind of staying in, I can, I, I can relate to, to being an empath and having to really work on understanding that I can feel for someone, but it is not my pain. Mm -hmm. It is not my trauma that I'm going through. I, I think it's a gift that I can feel deeply for someone, but to understand that it is not happening to me and that I can um, be there for someone, but I can't do it for them. I can't fix it. It's not mine. Yeah. Well, I think this is a great introduction to mindfulness. And one of the things, I guess the, the, the heart of this conversation is about how to apply mindfulness in those moments when you need to give a presentation, because I know that there are four basic, um, phases of speech giving the first being writing the speech, figuring out your topic, figuring out your content, being able to get yourself into a chair in front of a computer or at a notebook and writing information down that whole process in itself can create so much stress. And just, I want to outline the other three steps and then we'll come back to this one. But the third being, or the second step being the moments before giving a speech and knowing that, oh, in five minutes, I need to stand up in front of this room, or I need to turn on my camera and zoom into a meeting where I'm going to be talking at 10, 20, 50 people, um, how to be mindful in that moment. The third step being delivering the speech and actually being present for that. And then the fourth being processing the speech after you're done. And this is this step I think is rarely talked about. And it's one that lingers the longest because you then, after you turn off your camera or walk out of the room are left with all of your self-criticism and any kind of judgment you have of yourself, of what went well, what went wrong, where you messed up, what you forgot to say, the response you got from the audience, the lack of response you got from the audience, all the things that happen when you're, you know, in front of other people having to perform in some way. So I'm, I'm excited to go through these four phases with you and learn what you would do in order to be, to apply mindfulness and to be more mindful in each of those moments. So let's go back to the first step, which is the, just the writing of the speech and, and getting yourself to actually like put thought into putting that together. Yeah. So I, I appreciate how you um, break down the, the phases of speech delivery, right. All the way from the preparation to post. Um, and I think you know, the two things that I'm going to keep coming back to is um, the uh, 
narratives that can distract us and the um, understanding sort of um, what is what is ultimately important. So when I when I practice um, meditation and I get quiet and I, I focus in on my breath and I focus in on my um, whatever, holding that steering wheel again, um, I know that I, as I become more, op, more and more observational, all the, the thoughts spirals that can happen and I drop into my body, it becomes more and more clear what is ultimately important to me, right? And that those narratives are just that. They're the, the narratives I'm speaking of are those thought spirals that can happen and I'll keep calling them narratives. That's what I'm talking about. All the thoughts that we go off on are not important. They're, we're gonna keep coming back to our anchor and, th- and that practice helps us align with our values. What's ultimately important here? So those two things, um, observing the narrative and then coming back to what's ultimately important um, helps us live in alignment with our values, right? So those two things are also the threads of mindfulness that can help us with our um, speech all the way from preparation to post. So when I think about the preparation piece, I don't know about you, but I have spent a lifetime flicking this little editor off my shoulder (laughs) as I'm writing, whether I'm writing for a speech or just writing for whatever, um, that I feel the intended audience on my shoulder. And sometimes it can really freeze me up. And again, I have spent a lifetime just learning to flick that editor off my shoulder. Now, mindfulness has really, really helped me with this because Again, as I'm sitting down, I, I'll get the real freeze response. I, I will tend to procrastinate pre- preparing because of that imagined audience. Now, that is the narrative, right? That's me going off on the narrative of, oh, how is this going to go? Or like, ooh, this, this feels like a lot to get all of these concepts down onto paper. It just, it can feel overwhelming. So that practice of understanding that that is the narrative can help me then actually get to the putting it on the paper. If that makes any sense, I'm trying to sort of break it down. I'm just like separating that out as that is narrative. That's the thing that keeps drifting us away from the steering wheel. It's also the thing that keeps drifting me away from getting my thoughts on paper. Yeah, that makes total sense. And and as you're describing that, I'm wondering what have you learned about what you value by observing your narrative in that um, in that process? Right. So where where the knowing what the 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 value is or the aligning with my values is understanding the big picture of what my goal is for the speech. Right. So even in preparation for today, I don't know all of the details of where these questions will lead or what, you know, what exactly you will ask. But I gave some real thought to what is my intention with this with this um, podcast today? What is it that I hope to share with the audience? What do I really want to get across? I it helps me not to worry about all the details, right? So 
the main idea here is that mindfulness is about being present and there are a million ways you can do it, but the main nugget or value I want to bring is what mindfulness is and how it can be used, right? How that it can help us with anything, but speech giving is, is um, the focus here today. Yeah. So when you say value, you're talking more about the, the goal of what you're communicating versus a core value of yours. Yes. So I think that's how it translates for me in terms of speech giving, right? So I mean both things. So when I'm meditating, it does help me align with like what's really important to me. And with speech writing, it helps me align with what's really important for me to communicate. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I like that it can have two meanings too. Cause when I think about the stories or the narrative I tell myself when I'm sitting down to write something, I often say things like, um, oh, this is boring or this, like, who's going to want to hear this again? This has already been said a thousand times. And I tend to go into these um, beliefs about myself that I don't have anything of value to add to the conversation because I've, everything's already been said or done. And so I think what that is actually pointing out to me is that I really value competence and I really value knowledge. And, and so somehow my brain is trying to point me to that. But what I also want to bring to the conversation is real value. I don't want to recycle old ideas. I want to bring something that's fresh and um, insightful, and I want to wow the audience. So it's actually all of those stories I'm, I'm telling as much as they sound really critical, they're actually, um, helping me see that I want to do a great job. <laughs> That's... Yeah. And I, I, I do think too, to, to your earlier question about, well, to your, this question about, well, is it the value from the speech or is it also one of your core values? It is also one of the core values because I also, as a speaker, I want to connect with my audience. I want to be authentic. Right. And so that is one of my sort of core values of just kind of showing up as me and, and doing my best to do that and being authentic. And, um, and what is the main objective of this? What is that one nugget or two nuggets that I really want to communicate and how can I do that authentically? And so that when I start to spiral and go, uh Oh, is this what I'm putting down on paper? Important is, is what I'm putting down on paper too detailed. You know what? I don't, I don't have to get hyper-focused on all these details. I just need to come back to that steering wheel. I need to say, Hmm, am I being authentic? And am I delivering that main nugget? I don't need to worry about every single little detail. All right. Let's jump to step two, which is those moments right before you're going to give your speech, you know, you're the meeting's going to happen in 10, 15 minutes and your brain is starting to tell you all kinds of stories about all the things that are going to go wrong. <laughs> what, what can you do in those moments to try and stay present and mindful? So what I'll say here is that it's important. Um, I had, so mindfulness is not, and meditation is not an intellectual exercise. Um, so you can't just kind of read about meditation and mindfulness or frankly, listen to a podcast about mindfulness and be like, oh, okay, I get it. Now I'm mindful. <laughs> it's really this practice on a very physiological level of, of 
again, back to that handy model of like really spending time observing, observing your thoughts, observing how it is to come back to the breath, observing how it is to come back to that steering wheel. And so when in that practice, each, each person can figure out what works for me. Is it a sound meditation? Is it, is it some, some deep breathing? Is it some, um, even some mindful movement. And so what I would encourage the audience to do is through this practice of meditation, mindfulness, figure out, you know what, what does help me? Um, what, what is my favorite anchor? And then use that. So I will, um, I mean, prior to doing this podcast, I sat for three to four minutes and focused in on my breath. Breath for me is where it's at. <laughs> um, I like to make a little noise with my breath as a little sort of whisper noise. So it also gives me some, um, something to tune in with my ears as well, but other people might really like to do a little bit of, um, stretching to kind of drop into their bodies and come to the here and now. Um, some might like to do what purely just a sound meditation and just listen to the sounds around them. Even if it's, um, you know, if you're, out in, in public and you need to just go sit in the lobby of wherever it is and just listen to the sounds of people moving in and out and um, do that for two minutes, do that for three minutes, whatever it is that works for you. When I teach mindfulness, I teach a ton of, if I'm doing a, a course, say over a, a few weeks, I, I, I teach a bunch of, of different strategies for finding different anchors and say, what works for you? What works for you? What works for you won't be the same as for me. Um, but to actually take those anywhere from 30 seconds to, to three minutes ahead of a speech and drop into your anchor that works. Yeah. And I think what you're describing is a pre-speech ritual, which is unique to each person and it can include the mindfulness. And then I like to also add things to that, like what you eat and the exercise you do and, um, just things that you can do to put yourself in a good frame of mind and for your body to feel relaxed. So being able to, I don't know, use your creativity to imagine all the different things that could work that will help put you in a place where you feel like you're um, at your best to deliver that speech is it's kind of a fun process. So I like that you leave it open-ended for people to explore on their own. And just one more thought on that is that, that one of the things you can actually even use as sort of a mantra running through your head is whatever that, that nugget is that you want to deliver authentic. And what is mindfulness, right? To yeah. just kind of have that almost coursing through your veins before speaking, mm -hmm. um, just repeating that to yourself over and over. So sorry, okay. go ahead. Yeah, no, it's great. And the third step is the delivery of the speech. How do you uh, use mindfulness for that? So one is in thinking about my actual stance on stage or sitting in front of a computer these days. Yeah. <laughs> How do I feel best in my body? Um, and one of the things that I noticed um, actually through some of, some of your um, tips and, and working as a, as a club leader, speaker sisterhood is thinking about how I stand. I, I, um, I recorded myself, um, giving, giving a speech actually about mindfulness and watched it back. And this was pre COVID and I was doing a speech in person and my legs were crossed and I was doing this rock back and forth, little fun movement. 
And first of all, I found it distracting. But second of all, as I started to work on not doing that, just from a pure like visual, like how do I want to uh, appear? I realized that having that, my feet hip width apart and feeling grounded was actually a great mindfulness exercise as well to really feel in my body grounded in the moment. So one, thank you for that tip to record myself. Um, so, and then that, that did lead me to this strategy of really understanding how I feel most present in my skin, in my body. So that's one. And then two, um, there are moments where say, I, I don't know, I stumble over a word or I get a little tickle in my throat, need to stop and, and take a drink of water. I occasionally will get into this, you know, thought spiral that used to happen to me way more often before I started meditating. And, and I, my, it, it'll look something like this. Uh-oh, this is a long pause. <laughs> What's <laughs> what are they thinking now? Will I find my next word or won't I? And it's like this, like almost like a, a voiceover leading into a reality show, like what's going to happen next. And then I go, Hmm, I'm in a thought spiral and drop back into my body. So again, it's the same thing. I hate to keep repeating myself, but it's just coming back to the steering wheel. Yeah. It's like, Oh, there I am on the thought spiral. Instead of diving further into that content, which is not helpful. Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back and just do the next word. Just do the next thing. I love that you're, you're kind of boiling it all down to one thing because that makes it easier for everyone to apply. If it's not like, well, it could be 74 different things. So let's you know grab your workbook. Right. Um, it just sort of makes things easier for, for everyone to apply when it comes to the processing the speech after you're done and processing your performance. It seems like the advice you gave about being able to pay attention to your narrative and what you value would come into this step as well. Cause all the stories you're telling yourself kind of just come back to like what really matters to you. So you can, I mean, just, I mean, I'm paying attention. So just wanted to see if that was, <laughs> if that's accurate. you're guessing on what I'm going to say. Just guessing. I'm just, I'm just answering questions for you. Oh my gosh, you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's that. It's saying, hmm, I'm spiraling about how did I say it? What did I, what did I say? Hmm, that's a narrative. I'm going to come back to, you guessed it, the steering wheel. I'm going to drop back into my body and know that I, um, I worked on being authentic and I worked on delivering my, um, you know, my overarching goal of, what is mindfulness? And that's that. There, all these other details are just details that, you know, ultimately don't matter as long as I, you know, stay in my skin and, and to the best of my ability, not that I'm in my skin all the time. Um, and then the other thing I would add is at any moment for me, for me, the, at any moment, discomfort can come up, right. Of like, you know, before the speech, um, the preparation, the right before the speech, the delivery or after. Um, if I were to have a moment of discomfort, it's most likely to show up for me after and wondering how did it go? You know, so, but what I'd like to say is it's really important to actually just breathe into that discomfort. I think our brains want to like fix it or run from it or say like, 
or obsess about it. So I don't, I, I think it's really important to actually just label it discomfort, be observational about discomfort and breathe right into it. And so what I mean is just give it space to be, but not keep obsessing about it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. We have to wrap up. Is there, are there any last words of wisdom or final advice you'd like to offer? If you are not someone with a regular um, mindfulness practice, but want to give it a try, there's apps out there that um, can help you do that for free. I use Insight Timer. Um, They have timers, but they also have guided meditation. And the other thing is to, um, I I learned this over years of trying to to establish a regular and consistent practice. I only ask myself for three minutes a day of sitting and breathing or sitting and, and meditating. Um, I often do more than that, but what I learned is by setting the bar low, <laughs> I developed a very consistent practice. And just that, that touch point alone of understanding that we can drop into our bodies and keep returning to our anchor um, makes a difference in my day-to-day life. So I just don't want people to feel like this is a daunting task to somehow meditate every day. And it needs to be, you know, X amount of minutes, three minutes a day can really make a difference. Do you have any programs or any, anything you want to share or promote to anyone listening that you're working on or that they can find more information about? Um, I would just say, you know, check out my website, um, www.villageparenting.net and uh, reach out. I, um, am, you know, always taking, um, you know, parent coaching clients, but also if people have an interest in, um, you know, mindfulness and parenting or any other workshops you would see on my website, um, reach out. Well, Teresa, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your expertise. I love that you were able to simplify something that is so powerful and helpful for not only speaking, but any situation where you feel like you could use some some support. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Angela. I hope you loved today's show. If you did, a great way to say thanks is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It takes around 30 seconds and it's a great way to say thanks. My music was created by Kelly Vogel and the show is produced in the Glitter Closet in Western Massachusetts. Well, that does it for me this week, my friends. As always, stop waiting, start creating. See you next time.